Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining our live stream broadcast tonight. Before I begin, I've got a couple of announcements. This Sunday, we will be meeting at Revive Church in Franklin Park. You can go on our website, cclkgrove.org. We have the information up there. We'll have two services. They're going to be a little earlier than usual, 8.15 and 10.15. And just so you know, we will only be live streaming the 10.15 service, okay? Not both, just the 10.15 service we will be live streaming. And uh, tonight after our study, we will have communion. So if you haven't gotten your elements together, you might want to quickly run over and grab them, have them ready to go. But um, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would be poured out on this study, that your spirit would really be our teacher, Lord, bringing these uh, principles and truths forth in the power of your spirit, that hearts will be touched, eyes opened. Uh, unbelievers will get saved. Your people would be sanctified and you'd be glorified and all that's done. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Well, please turn to the book of Revelation if you're not already there. For those of you who are new, we have currently begun a study in the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 1. And I would just like to pick it up in verse 9 as we uh, begin tonight's study, where it says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, John was taken into the realm of the Spirit, and I believe he was transported in time into the future, which allowed him to see the things that he would write in this book as they were actually taking place, all right? Uh, John tells us that all of this happened on the Lord's Day, a term that the Christian church used to represent Sunday because that was the day the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. One author writes, and I quote, Among pagans, the first day of each month was Emperor's Day. Perhaps Christians proclaimed their allegiance to Jesus by honoring the first day of each week as their Lord's Day. This is not the same term used for the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, nor is it the same idea. The book of Revelation will definitely deal with the idea of the day of the Lord but it does not do so here. The Greek is not the same for the Lord's day. All right, just so you understand that. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, how could all of these events that John sees that make up the book of Revelation, uh, including the seven-year tribulation period, the thousand-year millennial kingdom, and even the start of the eternal state, how could all these things have happened in one day, Sunday, the Lord's day. Well, it's because in the realm of the spirit, guys, time is not a factor. Uh, as we have said before, time is a physical dimension, uh, part of our four-dimensional physical universe. Uh, and as such, time has physical properties. In other words, it is affected or subject to mass and velocity. Now, I'm no physicist or whatever, but I've heard uh, scientists say 
that the closer you approach the speed of light, the slower time gets. I was reading one scientist who said, look, if you had twin brothers, twin brothers, and one of them went on a mission to Alpha Centauri, which is the closest star in planetary system uh, to Earth's solar system, about four and a half light years from Earth. If one of those brothers went to Alpha Centauri and back at the speed of light, when he returned, he'd only be 28 days older, but his brother would have aged nine years. Uh, it's a weird thing. But in the realm of the spirit, because there's no mass, um, time is not a factor. And uh, I, I don't think it's possible for us to know exactly what John experienced uh, on the island of Patmos that Sunday and exactly what mechanism God used to transport him into the future. But listen, it happened. It happened. We know it happened. And God used it to give John, and listen, all of us who read this book, a balcony seat to the events that in a very short period of time, are going to take place on the earth in real time. So, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So, the loud voice John hears speaking as a trumpet is Jesus, is Jesus. He calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Of course, as we said last time, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. We would say the A to Z, A to Z, signifying that Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end of all things. And I kind of feel in this context, the idea is he was the beginning of time. In other words, when Jesus spoke the physical universe into existence, John chapter 1, uh, verse 3 for by him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. All right. So when the Lord Jesus Christ spoke the universe into existence, at that moment time started. Because now you had a physical dimension and physical uh, planets and, and stars and things like that. And so at that time uh, moment, time began. And everything from the beginning of creation, when time first started, to the culmination of creation will remove out into the eternal state. And again, not subject to time anymore. Jesus Christ has been controlling and working. He is the God of all creation. And so uh, he is the first and the last. Uh, he is the A to Z and so on. But something else, the term first, the, uh, the first and the last, and then the Alpha and the Omega are clearly titles that belong to the God of Israel, who is not just the God of Israel, he's the God of all creation, of course, but Yahweh. These are titles that are specific and unique to Yahweh. Uh, we know him as the God of Israel, our God, those Christians, and only to Yahweh. Let me read to you uh, a few scriptures. You can write these down. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Isaiah 48 verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first and I also am the last. Revelation 1 verses 17 and 18, which we'll get to in a moment. 
And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he's, he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. And so on. I think I, I read that twice. Uh, my computer program, I think, doubled it up. But you understand, all right? Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And I'll give you one more. Revelation 22, verse 13. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So by Jesus calling himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, he is applying the title of the God of Israel to himself, to himself. And those who say that Jesus never claimed to be God um, haven't got a clue. They don't understand this passage at all. It's pretty obvious. But verse 11, Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book. Now, Jesus is telling John, look, uh, what you see, he's seeing a vision right now, uh, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, that's modern Turkey, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, as we have already talked about, the number seven is the number of completeness. Uh, seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale, seven colors in a rainbow, etc. Seven is the number of completeness. Um, why these seven churches? Why write this letter to these seven churches? I mean, uh, you had uh, bigger churches that were more important than these churches that Jesus could have singled out to send uh, this letter to, like the church at Rome or Antioch or especially the church in Jerusalem. Why these? Well, we've already said it. Let me just say it again, and we'll really get into it in chapters 2 and 3. You'll understand very clearly when we get to those chapters. But why these seven? Because symbolically they speak uh, to the complete church, the complete church as a whole throughout the history of the church age from Pentecost to the rapture. And we're going to see that clearly in, again in chapters 2 and 3. So verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had on his right hand, excuse me, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. The vision of Jesus that John saw and recorded in verses 10 through 18 of chapter 1 is very important. Very important. Because when Jesus dictates the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which we'll study in chapters 2 and 3, which again, guys, represents all of church, all, all churches throughout the church age, 
he begins each letter with something from this vision of himself that pertains to something going on in that particular church. For example, Revelation 2, verse 1. Jesus said to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That comes out of chapter 1, verses 13 and 16. Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. That's out of chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And then Revelation 2, verse 12, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's out of chapter 1, verse 16. And we'll see when we get to these letters that the, the part of this vision that he uses to address that church uh, is important because it gets into something that's going on in that church, and that's why he uh, took that um, part of the vision to apply to that church. We'll see it when we get there. Now, as we look at each of these, remember something, that this is a vision of Jesus, not, uh, it's not literal, it's symbolic. Now, it, it, you know, th this is the vision of Jesus, but it's not literal, it's symbolic. Uh, artists have tried to paint a picture of Jesus from this passage, and guess what? It looks pretty grotesque. That's because it wasn't meant to be uh, painted uh, as an accurate representation of Jesus. Uh, it's a vision, a vision of the glorified Christ in symbolic form. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. John saw seven lampstands, not seven candlesticks, as the King James translates it. That's unfortunate. These were oil-burning lamps. Each had a base, each had a stem, and on top of the stem there was a cup or a bowl containing uh, a wick and oil. This is what was called an oil-burning lamp. And uh, each lamp, we don't have to guess what these represent symbolically, uh, we're told in verse 20 that each lampstand represented a church. Verse 20, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Again, guys, the number seven is the number of completeness. So these seven lampstands are representative of all Christian churches and uh, symbols uh, and symbolize, I should say, the church in, uh, you know, in, in unity, the church in general as the light of the world. That's a theme that we see in the pages of Scripture. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14 to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then Paul picks up on that in Philippians 2, verses 14 to 16. He said, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless Children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, listen, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So much darkness out there, guys. We need to let our light shine. It's bad. It's bad. And the church needs to rise up now and really let its light shine by not getting involved in all the negativity and hatred and violence, of course, but radiating the love of God the uh, acceptance of God, forgiveness of God. God loves all people. God's not a racist. Uh, God loves all people the same. 
He is no respecter of persons and so on. Uh, but this is a time for us to rise up and shine as lights amidst a crooked and perverse generation, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So Paul says, come on, uh, I poured my life into you guys. Show me that your faith is genuine. Let your light shine, all right? They are golden, golden lampstands, okay? Golden, that's important. Gold was the most precious metal, uh, is still the most precious, I think it is. I'm not sure, I'm not a metallurgist, but I think it's the most precious, it was back in Paul's day, but uh, gold was the most precious metal, signifying to the church, signifying that the church is to God, listen, the most beautiful and valuable entity on earth. Now, I realize that uh, unbelievers don't see it that way, all right? Uh, unbelievers look uh, at Hollywood or, you know, um, some sports, uh, you know, phenomenon, some, some great athlete or, uh, or musician, singer, whatever, and they uh, look at these famous people and uh, wealthy people, and uh, in their minds, that is the most valuable thing on earth to be like them. But Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 15, he said, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's one of the reasons I never watched the, the uh, Academy Awards or any awards shows. It's the world patting itself on the back and giving themselves awards, oftentimes for uh, things that are very ungodly. And uh, of course, the world applauds, the world thinks that's the height, that's uh, the most incredible, precious thing uh, in the world to be like these folks. Uh, God looks at it and it's an abomination. What God values is his church. And uh, we are the light of the world. We are the treasure uh, that's hidden in the world. And we need to let our light shine again. We need to let people know what God is like. That's how we can uh, maximize our worth in this world, by showing people what God is really like and so on. Verse 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now this reminds me of Daniel's vision that we studied when we were looking at the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. The term Son of Man is a messianic phrase, indicating that Jesus was born a son of Adam. You realize Adam in the Hebrew means man, okay? So technically the Son of Man, uh, we could say the Son of Adam. And that's what Jesus Christ uh, really was. He was a, a flesh and blood member of the human race. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because the first man, Adam, plunged the human race into sin, slavery, and separation from God because of what he did in the Garden of Eden, eating the forbidden fruit. And it would take a descendant of his, a son of man, a son of Adam, or as Jesus is called in the New Testament, the last Adam, it would take him, the Lord Jesus Christ, a flesh and blood human being, to redeem mankind. Of course, we all remember Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6 which reads, He, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, we know him to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Now, guys, these verses succinctly and poignantly sum up the heart and foundation of the gospel. And that is, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 9.22 uh, says that directly. But um, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. But look, it's, since sinners can die for sinners, it would take the innocent dying for the guilty to make atonement for our sins. And yet everyone born into this world is a descendant of Adam and therefore is born with sin on their soul, resulting in physical and spiritual death. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. Look, for someone to die for sinners, they would first of all, yes, have to be a member of the human race. The Hebrew term is goel, which means kinsman redeemer. Kinsman Redeemer. The whole book of Ruth is dedicated to that subject. All right, how it would take a near relative to redeem Ruth out of out of uh, her debt. Uh, it would take a relative to redeem the human race, uh, the race of Adam's children. Uh, would that Adam plunged into sin, darkness, separation from God? Uh, you know, it would take another human being. To, be, to die for the human race and atone for our sins. But everyone born of Adam is born with sin on their soul, and sinners can't die for sinners. So that was the predicament we were in. However, it was possible. It was possible if the sinless, uh, if the one dying for sinners, uh, the one who had himself to be sinless, was virgin born. You see, sin was passed from the father to the children. In Adam all die, the Bible says, not in Eve all die. In Adam. Sin is passed from the father to the children. Jesus, to be a member of the human race, had to have a human mother. But if he had a human father, he'd be a fallen sinner. And that wouldn't work. So he was virgin born. Of course, Luke chapter 1 tells us that Gabriel said to uh, Mary, this virgin maiden, that she had been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah. She said, well, how can that be? I don't, I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. And uh, Gabriel said, with God, nothing shall be impossible. The power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And God is going to place within your womb the seed of God. That which is going to be born will be called the Son of God. And so that's how God redeemed us. God became man. He had a earthly mother but did not have an earthly father. His father, Jesus' father, was God the Father, which allowed him to bypass being born with original sin. And of course, he was born sinless and lived a sinless life. And only then could he go to the cross as the sinless Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, of all sinners. Praise God. John said in verse 13, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one stood like the son of man. And guys, this was a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave to his church before he ascended back to his father, uh, that he would always be with us, always be with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
I'll read to you three scriptures. There are others, but Matthew 28, verse 20, where Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, Jesus said, I am there in the midst of them. And then Hebrews 13, verse 5. Paul said, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself, the Lord Jesus himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So he has kept his promise to us. He always does. When he gives us a promise, you can be sure it's as good as done. The Lord Jesus Christ or God in general, when the Lord gives us a promise, you can take it to the bank. It's a done deal. Revelation 1 verse 13. Again, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man stood, clothed with, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest, with a golden band, or the Greek is golden sash, sash. The first thing that John noted about this vision of Jesus was that he was clothed with a robe, listen, that reached down to his feet. Now that's significant because these kinds of robes were worn by kings and prophets, that's true. But the word translated robe was used most frequently in the, in the Septuagint. Now what is the Septuagint? It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures uh, completed about 270 BC. Septuagint means 70. 70 scholars worked on this translation. The Hebrew language had become kind of a dead language, uh, you know, spoken only by the priests and so on, but not the common tongue anymore as Jews found themselves in Greek culture. So the Hebrew scriptures needed to be translated into the Greek so that the Jewish people could read their own scriptures. And again, that was completed in 270 BC called the Septuagint. So th but this word for robe, all right, was most frequently used in the Septuagint to describe the robe worn, listen, by the high priest. Yes, kings and prophets, but primarily that word was connected to the robe worn by the high priest. The fact that he was girded across his chest with a golden sash, I think, reinforces that interpretation. Since the high priest in the Old Testament did wear such a sash, we, you can read about that in Exodus 24, excuse me, Exodus 28, verse 4, and Leviticus 16, verse 4. Look, Jesus is our great high priest who offered, not animal sacrifice, offered himself as the Lamb of God for our sins, and who rose from the dead, eventually ascended back uh, to heaven, and was seated at the right hand of God the Father, where he is now making intercession for us as again our great high priest. One of my favorite verses on this, and I don't have time to get into it, go online, look it up, in our study in Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 25. It's one of those verses that is just as uh, powerful as John three sixteen. Yet a lot of Christians just pass right over it, not realizing what's going on. Check it out. But here it is, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost, all the way to glory, those who came to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And that, of course, again, gets into his high priestly ministry as our great high priest uh, in heaven interceding for us. 
What does that mean? Check out Hebrews 7.25, that study. I think, guys, it's best, though, to see this long robe. Um, I think it best to see in this long robe Jesus in all of his divine offices, prophet, priest, and king slash judge. He's all of those, right? They are all designations for him. So um, they all match. Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. John said his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Let me stop there. John's description of Jesus' head and hair as white like a white like white wool and snow is an obvious reference to Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 where similar language describes the ancient of days a reference to God the Father and we read it to you Daniel 7 verse 9 Daniel said I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated his garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool his throne was a fiery flame its wheels a burning fire. Now in Daniel 7, it's talking about God the Father, but very similar language, almost identical in Revelation 1, talking about Jesus Christ. So who is it? It's both. It's both. The fact that Jesus and the Father share the same attributes shouldn't surprise uh, us in the least, since they, along with the Spirit, are one God, the same God. They are the Trinity, uh, you know, Three gods in one, the triunity of God. So it shouldn't surprise us when we look at different passages that Jesus and the Father are described in almost identical detail because they are the same God. All right. The Greek word translated white has the connotation of bright, blazing, or brilliant, like the sun shining. That's the idea. Uh, now, the, I, I just want to share this with you. In the Old Testament, a man's white hair, white hair was a badge of honor, uh, denoting his being an elder in the community uh, of Israel and possessing the wisdom that uh, comes from having lived many years upon the earth. They were revered. They were called the hoary heads in the Old Testament, the hoary heads uh, after the hoarfrost. Sometimes uh, in the year, in the early morning, there would be like a, a frost on the ground. And they called it the hoarfrost. It was white. And so they likened it to the heads of the elderly. Uh, these men that had the, this, this white hair. And as I said, they were the elders. And the elders were revered in Israel. They were greatly respected. And part of the reason was because uh, after having lived on the earth for many, many years, they had acquired a certain amount of knowledge and wisdom. And so young people went to these uh, older men for guidance and for counsel and so on. It doesn't happen so much today. Because our society doesn't view the elderly the same way as Israel did in the Old Testament. That's a shame. Uh, a shame. Because they certainly have a lot to share and to offer to a, to younger folks. I almost said to us younger folks. I'm one of the hoary heads. Uh, so, uh, no. But, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, if, if the young people would come to the elders, they would uh, benefit um, from just the wisdom that uh, older folks have learned over the years and so on. But, um, so, you know, in the Old Testament... A white man, uh, an old man's hair, white hair was a badge of honor. When it's applied to God, it denotes his eternal nature and wisdom, uh, with also a thought of purity. White, of course, being a, a, a you know 
uh, speaks of purity also. Uh, that's our God, okay? Um, eternal in nature. He has been around a very long time. Of course, he has great wisdom. He has all wisdom, uh, all knowledge, all wisdom. You can't go to anybody in the universe that is better equipped than God to give you great counsel and advice. You got a whole book full of it. It's called the Bible. Get into it. Read it. He is the wonderful counselor we read. And uh, boy, if people would just go to the Word of God to uh, find answers for their problems and how to deal with certain crises and situations, how much better the world would be. Well, Revelation 4, uh, chapter 1, verse 14 again, goes on to say, in his eyes like a flame of fire. Now, each of these are describing Jesus uh, in allegorical terms, but each of them is rightly, um, in a symbolic way, uh, talking about Jesus and all of his fullness. All right? And part of who he is, he has eyes like a flame of fire. Um, the flaming fire in his eyes speaks of his searching penetrating gaze with regard to sin and ultimately the judgment of sin. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. He knows everything. He knows every action we have ever done. He knows every secret thought we have ever thunk. <laughs> I think that's a word, isn't it? Um, you know, but uh, one day uh, people, and uh, primarily it's unbelievers are in view, will give an account um, to God for the things that they have done. Many of these things done in secret, under the cover of darkness, thinking that God doesn't see, but God sees all. And uh, best to understand that and repent, get your life right with God right now. You don't want to stand before him on the day of judgment without Christ because he will lay everything bare. All things are, are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday stand before and give an account to. Matthew 10, verse 26, Jesus said, Therefore do not fear them, those that, can only, uh, that could kill the body and do no more. Um, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Again, uh, there's coming a day when all the sins of a person's life will be uncovered. They will be made known. In fact, Jesus even said they'll be shouted from the house, housetops. Wow. Um, so get your life right with God now. You're not fooling him. You're not pulling the wool over his eyes, so to speak. All right? He knows what's going on. He knows everything you think and do, every word you say. Please, get your life right with him right now by repenting of your sins, uh, confessing your sins, receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. And uh, if you're a Christian, get yourself right with God by confessing your sins to Him. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He loves you. Um, it grieves His heart that you've walked away, you've gotten involved in sin, and His arms are outstretched saying, come back to me, I love you. Uh, confess your sin, I'll forgive you. We can start together again walking on the path of fellowship and unity and so on. But, uh, you know, it talks about, you know, in the Bible how Jesus uh, searches, out, not, searches out not only the sins of the world in general, that's true, but uh, in this context, how he also searches out the sin in his church, in his church. Revelation 2.18, 
And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God. So this is addressed to a church. These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Peter said, 1 Peter 4.17, that judgment begins, listen, at the house of God. Yes, God is going to judge the world. But before he judges the world, he's going to judge the church. And there's a lot of folks who go to church who are not Christians. They think they are. But they're living lives contrary to everything God said, um, which is the fruit of a life that doesn't know Jesus. We all sin as Christians. We're not perfect. But a person who lives their life, uh, you know, uh, in sin in, in, in general, I mean, you know, it lives a life that... Um, uh, you know, where sin is practiced on a daily basis uh, without any real remorse or uh, repentance uh, indicates that that's a person who doesn't know God, even though they go to church. Jesus said that on the day of judgment, many will, will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we cast out demons in your name and worked miracles in your name and done many other wonderful things in your name? And I will tell them to depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. So good works don't save us, but they are the fruit of a saved life. And if you say you believe in Jesus, but don't have the fruit of a transformed life, not perfect, but definitely not like it once was, if there's no fruit there, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. And so uh, Jesus is going to judge his church. Uh, when I say that, I mean those who are a part of a church, um, many churches today are not, uh, they're, they're so um, worldly, carnal. Um, I was reading just today how that when the president made that speech where he said we must have uh, law and order in this country, uh, and I, if I need to, I will send out the, uh, the army to stop the rioting in these cities where innocent people are getting hurt and even killed. Um, he then took a walk with his uh, entourage uh, to the Church of St. John's, a very old and well-respected church in the area right near the White House. And uh, it had been torched the night before. It was pretty much okay, but they had done some damage. And uh, there he held up a Bible and said, we need to get back to God, basically. And I was shocked at how many, uh, how many clergy, men and women, pastors, uh, denounced him for that, as if that was somehow an evil thing. Uh, thankfully, Franklin Graham said, man, I'm so glad he did that. That was a good thing. I'm, I'm on Franklin's side. Uh, that was a good thing. I'm so glad he did that. We need God in this country. We've turned our backs on God. This is the fruit. All the rioting and the looting. This is not uh, about a poor black man, and I mean it. A poor black man, when I say poor, I don't mean poor financially. I mean a man who was uh, victimized by a bad cop. Not all cops are bad, but this one was, who knelt on this man's neck for 10 minutes until he choked the life out of him. We all denounce that. Um, but that doesn't give anybody a right to burn buildings down, loot, steal, hurt others. That's not uh, righteous indignation. That's corrupt. Anyways, John went on to say in verse 15 that Jesus' feet, this vision of Jesus Christ, his feet were like fine brass 
as if refined in a furnace. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but kings in ancient times sat on elevated thrones. And that was purposely, it was done that way, uh, so that those being judged would always be, listen, beneath the king's feet. Because the idea was it was always the greater who judged the lesser. Ultimately, God judging man. But uh, we even see that in earthly kings and how they did it in those days. Uh, the king was always elevated, and the person brought before him uh, for the king to judge, pronounce innocence or guilt to judge that person, was always below the king. And because of it, guys, the feet of a king came to symbolize his authority. But not just that, in particular, his authority to judge. His authority to judge. We read that Jesus' feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, red hot. The bronze altar in the temple, uh, that's where sacrifice for sin was conducted. The animals were placed on the brazen altar where they were killed, and then the, they were lit, burned, and uh, that was a, a, a burnt offering or a fellowship offering, different offerings that they would uh, kill and then burn the animal. And um, that, was, that took place on the uh, bronze altar. Uh, sometimes called the brazen altar, right outside the temple proper. And after the uh, brazen altar of sacrifice, he had the labor where the priest would wash before he would enter into that first compartment of the temple proper, the holy place. And then through the curtain, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. But <clears throat> just so you understand, though, that bronze, because it was a metal that could be heated very, very hot uh, and didn't melt, um, it became associated with judgment, with judgment. And this is what we see here. The king, Jesus Christ, uh, his feet uh, glowing like red hot bronze, signifying his authority, his authority to judge, fire being a, a, a symbol of judgment and so on. And uh, John goes on to say in verse 15, and his voice as the sound of many waters, many waters. Um, I personally have a better understanding of that, what that means, because uh, several years ago, my family, uh, we took a little vacation, and part of it, we stopped at Niagara Falls uh, for a few hours. If you've ever been there, you know the roar uh, of that sound of the water uh, crashing uh, down, uh, you know, in this tremendous waterfall. It's like a thunderous roar. And uh, that's what John, not that John knew Niagara Falls, but that, that's what uh, John was talking about. Uh, the thunderous roar that comes from a great amount of water coming down in a waterfall. John says that's how the voice of Jesus sounded, all right? The idea is that Jesus speaks with power and authority. Listen, and he must be heard. A sound that loud gets your attention. Um, you know, if you are all of a sudden ex exposed to a, a sound like that, you stop in your tracks and look to see where it's coming from. It demands your attention. And you're quiet in the presence of this incredible sound. Jesus, that's Jesus. Jesus demands our attention. We're so busy running around uh, like chickens without their heads, running around from one uh, task to another, one job to another, one uh, vacation to another, whatever it is. And Jesus is trying to get our attention. John is saying that in, in no uncertain terms by saying, look, when Jesus speaks, 
at least when I heard him, it was like the sound of mighty waters rushing and um, signifying that Jesus, when he spoke, it spoke, it was powerful, authoritative, and he demanded to be heard. Now, listen, so many today, and look, God is always speaking. People say, God never speaks to me. God has more to say to you than he ever had to say to Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah. How do you, what do you mean? You've got his word, 66 books uh, that contain the word of God. Uh, for every problem, every situation, uh, for every person, whatever walk of life you're in, uh, God has spoken to you volumes, uh, 66 books, all right, uh, of things that he wants you to listen to. But many today, God, and not only is God speaking through his word, uh, but he speaks t through those who teach and preach his word. And then, of course, he also speaks to the human heart. And Elijah said this when he was uh, in the cave after he had run away from Jezebel. And uh, he was hiding out. And, and God said, you know, go outside the cave and I'll speak to you. And what was it? He, a, a mighty rushing wind that, that threw rocks down the canyon, tore them apart. You know, God wasn't in the, the sound of the wind. Uh, then a mighty fire roared through the canyon, but God wasn't in the fire. Then a still small voice. That's the thing. God most often speaks to us with a still small voice. You have to be listening. Jesus said more than a few times, he who has ears to hear, let him listen to what I'm saying. God is speaking. But today, so many are dull or hard of hearing. Why are they hard of hearing? Because of their sin and wicked lifestyles. Um, it has drowned out the voice of God. God is speaking, but they are not listening. That's what judgment's all about, folks. You realize that? Judgment is God shouting to get our attention. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. And we've talked about this. How that before God brings ultimate judgment, he will begin with lesser, smaller judgments that are designed to wake people up, get their attention so that they would repent before the ultimate judgment comes and wipes out many. Revelation chapters uh, 6 through 19 talk first of all about those minor judgments where God is speaking, yes, some catastrophes and judgments, but they're relatively minor to get people's attention. And they do, as we're going to see, millions get saved before God shifts into the ultimate judgments, uh, which wipe out millions and millions of people. God always gives us uh, a people time to repent. Even if they've gotten so hard-hearted, they're not really listening to the, for the voice of God. God loves them so much, he'll begin to bring calamities, adversities, um, COVID-19, uh, other things to, to kind of grab hold of their attention. I love you, kind of shaking people. Look, I love you. You're heading down a path that's going to go right over the cliff and into eternal judgment. Now, come on, wake up. Get into my word. See what I've said. I love you. I died for you. And so on. He's trying to wake people up. And hopefully he will. Hopefully he will. And one of the problems is today that the book of Judges puts its finger on. I think it says five to seven times. Um, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, every man did whatever seemed right in his own eyes. 
No king in Israel. Um, therefore, everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. There is no king in America. No, Donald Trump is not the king, okay? Uh, he's just our president. But when I say there's no king in America, I mean that Jesus is not really on the throne. We, we say that we're a nation under God, but we are really not. Not in general. There are, of course, many godly people in America, and we pray that God would save more, uh, that he would bring another great uh, awakening, revival, that will bring millions and millions into the kingdom before the rapture happens and these ultimate judgments come. But um, we as a nation have turned our backs on God. Um, we give him lip service. Again, we, we say we're a nation under God. We got to print it in our money and coinage, but uh, it's all verbiage. It doesn't mean anything. People are not living uh, as God has uh, told them to. I think, again, the evidence is the riots we are seeing going around the country. Um, there are some peaceful protesters, and I uh, very much, um, uh, you know, uh, defend their right to, to peacefully protest. That's one of the hallmarks of our uh, of our constitutional republic that we allow for free speech and people to voice their their opinions or their concerns. That's that's great, as long as it's peaceful. Uh, as long, but it, what we're seeing the last few nights. Uh, when the sun goes down, and now it's gotten so bad, the looting, the burning, now they're beginning to kill cops or shoot cops. One dead, one with a bullet in his head and a, in a critical condition in a hospital somewhere, four others dead. I think I was reading how that um, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, was interviewed and asked about this, if this was, in his mind, the result of systemic racism and he said no i think this is the result of hearts that are have turned away from god this is a spiritual thing it's not a it's not a, a political thing or even a racial thing really it is a heart it's a heart thing and uh, we see this kind of uh, thing happening when a nation has turned its back on god it begins to descend into anarchy and violence uh the love of many grows cold uh, life is not precious anymore it's not, it's, there's no sanct sanctity of life anymore in people's hearts. And we see it with abortion, but we even see it uh, the last few nights with uh, innocent people trying to defend their stores and they're jumped upon by a mob, beaten, bloody, left on the ground uh, for dead. Uh, people filming it, taking pictures, uh, uh, videoing it to put in their Facebook, cheering the, the people on who are committing these violent acts. I mean, it is really sad uh, when we see these things, and it does definitely indicate a breakdown of society, and that is because when a nation turns its back on God, God turns his back on that nation. David said to Solomon, when he was uh, coronating him as the new king of Israel, he said, Solomon, he said, um, seek the Lord with all your heart, serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind, for God will bless you if you seek him. However, if you forsake him, he'll forsake you and all Israel. And that's what we see. Guys, this is an indication that we as a nation, for the most part, have forsaken God. And we need revival. We need a great awakening. Pray for it, please. Pray for it. Um, we have, um, because of the uh, lockdown over the last uh, three months now, and uh, I, did, I had no idea what Zoom was, a Zoom meeting. Had no idea what that was until the lockdown. And then somebody introduced me to the Zoom where you can uh, have a meeting with people. 
and uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, on the computer and all, and uh, and so I thought to myself, and I've, I'm involved in several Zoom prayer meetings, and I thought, what a great way to get people praying for our nation, and uh, I think feel like the Lord put it in my heart a phrase: Zoom across America, Zoom across America, indicating that I would love to see Zoom prayer meetings all over the place, meeting throughout the week, uh, day and night. And I talked to uh, the gal that does our web stuff, and I said, um, uh, is that domain name free, Zoom Across America? She checked. It was. We bought it. And uh, we're going to promote it just as a way just to start praying for our nation. We desperately need it. Without prayer, we're done. Without prayer, there'll be no revival. There'll be no great awakening. God never does a great, lasting work apart from prayer. And that starts with the church, as we have talked about. Uh, quoting out of Second Chronicles seven fourteen, where God said, "If my people, called by my name, will humble themselves, seek my face, pray, and turn from their wicked ways, uh, then I will hear their prayer from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land." We we need to pray, guys. No two ways around it. So John, in verse sixteen, he said, "He had on his right hand seven stars." Uh, I just looked at my watch. I think we are going to have to stop there because I want to have communion. So we will pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 1 next week and no doubt finish the chapter. I hope to do it tonight, but that's okay. Um, we will finish chapter 1 uh, next week. So Lord, we thank you for your great love. And we ask you to continue to bless these studies in this incredible book. As we study it, Lord, that we would become acquainted with what's coming and pray, and that, Lord, you would be merciful, though, to America and bring one last great revival and awakening before the rapture. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great evening.